Our next guest is the president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association of British Columbia. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome to Chris Gardner, who's here to talk about Canadian productivity levels, which I assume he would agree with me are pretty much an international embarrassment. Chris Gardner, good morning. Uh, good morning, Sterling. It's great to be on the show this morning. Well, it's good to have you with us. You wrote a terrific piece in the Glacier a newspaper group there the other day. Canada needs to pick up its economic tempo. And tempo is an interesting word because the Germans have adopted the, uh, they call it, and I don't know how to pronounce it in German, but they have the Deutschland tempo. I think that's close. And basically yeah. that's just talking about how they're planning their economy. And you describe the Canadian tempo, uh, as you, and I'm quoting from you now, Chris, uh, Canadian tempo right now, could best be described as glacial planning, less building, and slow modernization. Frustrating to see so much opportunity slip away. It's so bad that 75% of the jobs added in Canada since the pandemic started have been government jobs. That's not a good sign, Chris. No, we're, we're um, you know, these, uh, if you look at all, the, all of the statistics where Canada's economic performance is being measured compared to other countries. Uh, we've been slipping quite significantly over the last number of decades. And this isn't, this isn't new. We talk about this a lot. The challenge is we've got successive governments that, that aren't doing what, what needs to be done to correct this reversal. And we just continue to slip and to slip and to slip. So another statistic that we highlighted in the, uh, in the editorial was that if you look at the length of time it takes Canada to approve a major infrastructure or construction project, we're ranked number 64 in the world. Yeah. That was coming from the World Bank. And, and so you've got 63 other co- countries that are able to do this faster than we are. And then just last year, the OECD looked at the, the 38 most advanced economies in the world and rank their economic performance over the next, over the coming decade, the next 10 years. Okay. And um, we were not in the top 10, the top 20, the top 30. We were dead last of the 38. And so if you think about what that means, they're projecting our economy will grow about 1% a year over the next 10 years. So that means if you look at the size of our economy now, it's going to take more than 70 years for our economy to double in size. And so the implications of that are, are fairly significant. If you remember growing up where parents and grandparents would say, you know, we've made all these sacrifices so that you or kids can, can live a better life, a sure. higher quality lifestyle, um, at the rates of growth that are now being projected for Canada, we just simply can't make that promise anymore. It's just not going to happen. So let's talk a little bit about the whys. And obviously we have, and you've talked about successive governments. The Liberals alone aren't going to wear this. The Harper government had its role to play in in Canadian infrastructure and in energy planning and all the rest of it. But you, you take a look at the current government, for example, and having turned down not one, but two deals or two opportunities for the Canadian petro sector to supply LNG to both Germany and Japan, two allies. That uh, uh, and respected business partners, uh, the government has this uh, green obsession to the point where a lot of Canadians, not all certainly, Chris, but a lot of Canadians are quite convinced the government is basically running a counterproductive agenda. Well, I think when it comes to, if you look at our energy sector, it is the major source of, of it's the number one source of Canadian exports. Uh, and that's all everything that comes from the energy sector, and you lump it all together. And it's an enormous employer directly and indirectly in this country, billions of dollars 
in uh, in economic spinoffs and hundreds of thousands of jobs all across the country. And um, so the challenge we have, if you just look at LNG, and LNG is much, much uh, cleaner burning fuel uh, than oil mm-hmm. and certainly than coal. And um, so there's been a lot of discussion about as we transition to a cleaner, greener economy, LNG can be a, an important stepping stone. And so back in 2013, um, neither the United States nor Canada were exporting LNG. Not a drop was being exported from Canada or the U.S. Okay. There were no export facilities operational in Canada or the U.S. 10 years ago. Fast forward to today, the U.S. has got nearly 10 that are now exporting facilities that are exporting LNG. They've got another eight under construction, and we've got two under construction. So the, the U.S. has vaulted into one of the major exporters of LNG in the world. Um, and um, they, you know, the, you alluded to the Chancellor of Germany, right. Canada, in, in, the, in the late summer. And the prime, our prime minister is saying, well, there's no business case to export LNG from uh, North America, from Canada to Europe. Uh, a few months later, the prime minister of Britain and Joe Biden, the president of the United States, sit down and sign a deal that will double the exports of LNG from the United States to Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So there is a business case. We're just missing the opportunity. We're going to talk forestry in a few minutes with Adam Olson from the Green Party. And I, and I wanted to go to forestry for a second because we're starting to see closures in B.C. forest production uh, outfits. Uh, we've got Canfor closing their Prince George pulp uh, facility to the tune of 300 jobs, Chris. Um, and we're also seeing, just in the forestry sector alone, and I'm isolating this just for a moment, we're seeing Canadian, British Columbia, based forestry companies investing abroad rather than here in Canada, let alone here in B.C.? Yeah, you know, and again, it's about, um, you know, uh, the, the provincial government, the federal government, and in many cases, local, setting the conditions to attract investment, not turn it away. So last, uh, you know, a few months ago, I was on a conference call with about 40 CEOs, and one of them was the CEO of one of the largest forest companies in Canada, uh-huh. uh, in BC, and he said, listen, in the last two years, we've invested more than $2 billion in expanding our operations, new technology, hiring people, but he said, not a single dollar of that has been invested in Canada. We've invested in the United States and we invested in Europe. And the simple reason is because he it's too difficult to get big projects approved in this country generally because we, we tend to say no and, um, and we put up roadblocks. And other countries are actually making it easier to invest and they're attracting the investment. And that's the challenge we have in Canada. We've, we convince ourselves that somehow the world wants to come to Canada. Investors all want to come to Canada. And it's a little bit of an illusion. And we're seeing that now play out in a way that's going to hurt our long-term prosperity and hurt our comp- and it's hurting our competitiveness. And yet, Chris, we know something can be done. For example, the people of Vancouver, out of sheer frustration, uh, voted for Ken Sim and the ABC party. We now have a party, a majority party, in the city of Vancouver that is dedicated to getting things done. I know they all say they are, but in this case, they have an agenda that uh, is, is, I would think, tempo-oriented in terms of actually getting things done, and they specifically talk about approvals. Vancouver has a horrible reputation for taking forever to approve a construction or a a housing project, and one of the objectives of of this new administration is to get things done, accelerate the approval process. If they can do that on the municipal level, why can't we do it at the provincial and federal level? In other words, it can be done. We have proof positive right here in town. 
Yeah, no, you're exactly right. There, there is um, the, the the issue with housing affordability comes down to one very fundamental issue, and that is we can't get enough supply on the market. And until we change that, until city halls uh, approve projects faster, uh, we will not solve the affordability crisis. That that's playing out in every major centre in this country. Mm -hmm. And you are right, Ken Sim was elected. Every single person who ran on the ABC team won. I think there was an enormous amount of frustration with affordability, with issues around public safety. Um, And uh, I think think voters are looking at Ken and his team with with a breath breath of fresh air. And, uh, you know, we're excited to see them start to uh, turn in a different direction. Well, let's project that forward to the other two levels of government responsible significantly more more responsible for the national economy, uh, and I'm talking now about elections due at very latest next year in both British Columbia and Canada. By then, do you think the sense of frustration that caused Vancouverites to elect a majority city council will be pervasive enough in both British Columbia and nationally to cause the kinds of changes, administrative changes, the country needs? Well, you know, the thing about uh, our politics is that it's very, it's, it's very polarized, it's, it's very divided, and, and the level of frustration is, is increasing and it is significant. So that does lay the groundwork for changes in government. Um, but it also, that's not necessarily so. Um, and incumbent governments can win through, um, um, through spending money and, and, you know, segmenting the population, putting money here, putting money there, and people thinking, okay, well, you know, who's in power now might be better than the alternative. But I I do think that uh, when you look at how we're performing economically, where the opportunities are, and what's happening in terms of investment in Canada, outbound investment in Canada has exceeded inbound investment in Canada every year since 2014. So we're losing more dollars than are coming in. Mm -hmm. That's not good. Um, If you look at our... uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about immigration and what that means for our future. And if you look at what happened in British Columbia last year, for the first time that we can find, more people died in British Columbia last year than were born. So mm. if you think of that, more deaths than births last year, first year on record that we've been able to track down, our, our population's flatlined. And so when you look at that is going to impact our long-term e- economic growth. To have a growing, vibrant economy, you need a growing, vibrant population. Sure. But it's not just good enough to open the doors and say, come on in. You've got to lay the conditions for success. There's no point in going out and recruiting doctors and nurses to help a healthcare system that's on the verge of collapse. And, and it's going to take them two, three, four years to get their credentials recognized. Let's figure that out. Um, there's no point in getting skilled tradespeople to bring them in and they need some additional training. It's going to take them eight to ten years in British Columbia to get a Red Seal designation in the construction trades because there's not enough spaces and there's not enough instructors. So all three levels of, of, of government are responsible for this in various ways, and they've got to stop finger-pointing, working together, because all of our, our success and our long-term prosperity hinges on government getting it right. Absolutely. Chris Gardner wrote this piece, and look, Google it in the, I saw it in the North Shore News, but it's in all the Glacier newspapers. The editorial is entitled, Canada Needs to Pick Up Its Economic Tempo, uh, written by the president of the Independent Contractors and Business Association, our guest, Chris Gardner. Chris, thanks for joining us this morning. Great editorial. We'll talk again. Great. Thank you very much.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.